0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Dr. Anne's Relationship Radio. This radio program is based on my belief that almost every challenge we have today had a seed from some unresolved relationship issue we had in the past. This idea covers a wide variety of themes, and I often find family of origin issues, negative feedback from teachers and peers, and traumatic events at the bottom of the basket that holds the reasons for what seem like unresolvable issues in our lives today. Let me offer an example. Let's examine substance abuse. I select this topic because many of us know someone who struggles with substance addiction issues. For years, substance abuse was deemed a moral issue. Alcoholics were bad people. Many people considered heroin use as something that was done by the lowest of society. And in my years as a chemical dependency psychologist, I noticed that the desire to use didn't really relate to ethics or the morality of someone else. Most of the addicts who have honored me was sitting with them while they processed their addiction issues, had a much deeper reason for using than just getting high or loaded. And you know, when I discovered that, listeners, it was like this aha moment. This is not um, judgment when people get addicted. This is a deep-seated challenge. So, as I just said, surprising to me was the depth of emotional pain behind the drinking and using and the suffering that had gone on before one even thought of reaching for a needle or a joint or a bottle, was sad to listen to, most of my patients traced their pain back to a relationship issue that caused such deep hurt that their need to numb their suffering carried forward for years and years. I determined that it was the past unresolved relationship issues that needed to be treated at the same time the mind-altering substance use was treated. So over time, I noticed that many of my patients were getting better. (laughs) Ha-ha, hallelujah. They were able to feel joy and happiness, which were foreign emotions to most of them. Their emotions were controlled by their substance use. But then I noticed that while some of my patients were abstinent from their chemical addiction, they had picked up a behavioral addiction along the way. And what are behavioral addictions? They're gambling shopping, binge eating, hoarding, impulsive stealing, and also we've added a new one, uh, video gaming can be an addiction, and kleptomania and sex addiction. Over time, I hope to have guests on this program who will educate our listeners about these types of behaviors that are often not considered addictions by the general public. So in one of the groups I conduct each week, A patient relapsed and told the group that she didn't think she had it in her to make yet another attempt at sobriety. She also admitted that she'd replaced her cannabis use with gambling. She reported that she was excited every time she heard the casino bells ring, and she knew that she was going to win a huge jackpot. She was married to that idea. And I asked her, what she'd won in the past, and she told me that she was $5,000 in debt. But it was okay, because she had a tax return coming and would pay it off when that arrived. So it's easy to slide from one type of addiction to another, and this is where resurrection comes in. Often we think about the word resurrection when we think about Easter Sunday or going to church. That's not how I'm using the term. What I mean by resurrection is the idea of leaving yesterday in the past and waking up to a new day of opportunity. Resurrection takes work, and today's guest has been through chemical addiction, behavioral addiction, and resurrection. Michael Burke's story is quite remarkable, and I'm going to let him share it with you himself. As a brief introduction, I want my listeners to know that today, Mr. Burke, J.D., is the president of the Michigan Association on Problem Gambling it is the board and is the board on the board of directors for the National Council on Problem Gambling and is the author of Never Enough I want you to pay attention to the name of this book and I'll tell you why in a second Never Enough one lawyer's true story of how he gambled his career away and uh, the, all the proceeds of that book go to pay back his clients. Mr. Burke has been in recovery from alcoholism for 40 years. That is such an accomplishment. And he's been in recovery from gambling for 17 years, another huge feat. In preparation for our program today, I asked him to send me his resume, and I received two single-spaced small font pages. It would take me the entire hour to mention all of his accomplishments. So without further hesitation, Mr. Burke, welcome to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Ann, and it's truly a pleasure to be
1: here. Well, you have so much to share with our listeners, and I want to lead us through your story step by step. Tell us about your relationship with alcohol. When did you start drinking? And why did you turn to alcohol?
2: Okay, well, uh, I'd like the audience to know that I was raised in the small community of Howell, Michigan, with my nine brothers and sisters. Hmm. I come from a family of lawyers. My grandfather, George Burke Sr., was an attorney in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and to this day, the Burke Law Firm is the oldest existing law firm in all of Washington County. After the Second World War, he was appointed as a judge at the Nuremberg War Trial. So when he came back to the state after that event, he had a lot of political clout. Now, my father went to law school, became an attorney, joined the family firm, but he just didn't care too much for the day-to-day practice of law and wanted to do something else. Well, my grandfather used some of that political clout that he had, and he went to the governor of the state of Michigan. Back then, it was G Mennon, Soapy Williams, and talked to the governor about a possible job for my father. Now, as a result of that meeting, my father received a lifetime appointment as the head of the Michigan Liquor Control Commissioner, a Commission. Now, as an alcoholic, it is a wonderful thing to be raised in the home of the Liquor Control Commissioner. I grew up in a house where we had 20, 30 cases of beer, wine, and whiskey in our basement at all times. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about it is, we were expected to drink, and from a relatively young age. So I grew up learning that alcohol was fine, uh, but you could never do anything in our family that might bring embarrassment to Dad. Mm-hmm. Now that created a social, uh, a social control drinker. And oh, I, knew I can from just day imagine one that I could never get in trouble with it. But it was kind of easy for me because like a lot of alcoholics you've had on your show, I was born with this incredibly high tolerance to alcohol and I could drink and drink and drink. Mm-hmm. Well, later on in life, I end up getting married to my high school sweetheart Jane. And Jane's father was an attorney in Howell, practiced for over 50 years. So in 1972, when they talked about opening up this brand-new law school, we talked it over and decided I'd be the one to carry on the family tradition. And I entered the very first class of Cooley Law School. Now, this was interesting. I knew at that point in time, that I drank too much. I also knew that the first year of law school was a make it or break it year. If I got through that, I could just skate. So I was faced with a decision and it was an easy one for me. I decided I was going to give up drinking, because I really wanted to be an attorney. Hmm. So I put the top on the bottle, put the bottle up in the cupboard. And Personally, I just used a little bit of willpower, and I got through that first year just fine. Hmm. Now, of course, what that meant to me, the alcoholic, was that I could go back and start drinking again, and I did that in my second and third year of law school. Mm -hmm. After law school, Jane and I uh, get married, and I move back to Howell. Uh, end up buying the house that I'd been raised in with my nine brothers and sisters, started practicing law, and I just loved it. The practice of law was more than I ever dreamed that it could be.
1: Well. As a drinker, I'm wondering, what types of problems did you encounter? Because it sounds like you got through law school just fine, and then you just fell in love with your job. So, again, as a drinker, what types of problems
2: did you encounter? Well, unfortunately, as time goes on, the drinking gets worse and worse and worse, and I'm starting to have serious problems at home and serious problems at work so i had to d- make a decision again about my drinking and this time it was really easy i was not going to lose the practice of law to alcohol so this time i decided to quit drinking i told my wife i told some of my friends i thought i'd get some support for it hmm. but and this time it was different this time, I couldn't stop drinking. No matter how much willpower I used, no matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did, I couldn't stop. So Yes, and I that's be- the cue. Be- oh, it- and it certainly was. I became what we call in the field a closet drinker. Mm-hmm. I started sneaking my alcohol. I told everybody I was going to quit. And so... You know, I couldn't let people down and not be able to do it. And so now I'm starting this whole new life of living 2 life. The one where uh, I told everybody I stopped drinking, but I'm literally buying a pint of Gordon's vodka every day uh, to yeah. get through those days.
1: Well, Michael, we're coming up on a break and we're going to come back to um, Michael Burke listeners in just a few minutes.
2: Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend –
0: Around-town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's
2: around-town movers. column.
3: Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
4: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.atlantahealingcenter.com.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the Americas Broadcast Network.com. Thank you for listening.
1: listeners to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. We are here with Michael Burke, who is telling us his life story, which is really important, I think, for everybody to hear. So, Michael, picking up where we left off, you were a, became a closet drinker, telling everybody that you weren't drinking. I think probably many of us can relate to that. So how did alcohol affect your personal life?
2: Well, and the biggest thing was my lying. Uh, my wife and I had been together for years. We were madly in love. And now I started lying to her about my drinking, and I had to carry that lie with me every day.
1: Wow. And how did it perf- uh, affect your personal, your professional life, I mean?
2: Well, I was not doing the job Uh, that I should be doing. I was truly a functional alcoholic, but things were sloppy. Things were not getting done. I was starting to have problems at work also.
1: Yes, and, you know, functional alcoholism is the mask that we can hide behind because it makes us look okay, but inside we are so not okay, and unless we're in deep, deep, deep denial, we know that we aren't, and it's an internal struggle. Every day, um, I, I want you wondered if you would tell us three things that happened to you that led you to decide that you were an
2: alcoholic. Um, number one was hiding my drinking, lying about it. it. The one thing I've discovered in this whole process, and this is so important to me, the foundation of every addiction is built upon lies. Mm -hmm. I also had tried to stop drinking, and I couldn't. And then came a trip out to Las Vegas where I had made up my mind to leave Jane, and i get out there, and that all blows up. And when I came home, uh, that is when I decided, uh, with a real gentle but loving nudge from Jane, uh, to go into treatment and get help in a 30-day inpatient treatment program. Well,
1: it's hard to be married to an alcoholic unless you – well, it's always hard. And uh, codependency and alcoholism and addiction kind of go hand in hand often. Uh, I wondered if you'd like to comment about that.
2: Oh, I, I agree 100%. Uh, I find all addiction to be biopsychosocial. Um, and the genetic uh, predisposition is uh, unbelievable. Uh, there was a history of some alcoholism in my wife's family. She never drank much in our entire 50 years together, um, but there was drinking in the family, and so she learned to become codependent there, and it carried right out through into our family life.
1: Yes, it's, it's very painful. I'm, I was wondering, Michael, was there an underlying issue that you were trying to drown out with alcohol?
2: It, you know, it was, it was so long ago. My thoughts about this have always been that my addictions always worked in the beginning. <laughs> and 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 you know when I was first drinking, um, I could go to parties. I thought I was funny. Um, I felt I felt more confident. Um, but unfortunately, as the drinking gets worse and worse and worse, that changes, and and the addiction takes over. I've, I've always said that the. Uh, chains of addiction are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. And that's how I felt my life was.
1: Yeah, and in listening to you, I'm just wondering if um, having to be so perfect in your role as a child in the family that you came from was a a pressure.
2: You know, it, it, it certainly was, and I also remember that, Uh, my father, for all the kids, decided what we would do when we grew up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the boys would be uh, football players to get scholarships for college, and I did that. And then uh, the suggestion was that I get into sales. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, Ann, because I was unable to go to law school uh, until my father passed away because I didn't want to disappoint him. Wow. So
1: that sounds like an
2: alcoholic family to me. <laughs> oh, and believe me, we were, everybody in the family, basically, almost all of them were. Um, and yet I can tell you today uh, that that's not the situation in our family anymore. We're a close-knit, loving uh, Irish family that just doesn't choose to drink a lot anymore.
1: Well, I think that's really interesting because it comes to my next question for you, which would be, what made you decide to get into recovery from alcoholism?
2: That's a huge decision. Yeah, well, it was either go into treatment uh, at that point in time uh, or our marriage of 10 years was going to be over. Mm -hmm. And believe me, uh, that was an easy decision for me to make then. And you know what? I would gotten through that stage where nobody knew. Everybody knew, of course. Of course. Uh, <laughs> and so I went into treatment, and it literally turned my life around.
1: That is wonderful, because part of what I do in my profession is treatment. And, boy, relapse and trying and trying, and then you get worn out And I think you've been clean for 40 years from alcohol, and that is just so admirable. Would you share your recovery path with our listeners? Because most people that I deal with, at least, go through this, oh, my God, I just remember all the good old days, and it takes them out, that euphoric recall. So, how did, how did you do it? What is your recovery path that's kept you clean and sober for 40 years?
2: Well, I was so fortunate in that I had such a healthy partner. Um, my wife was, at this time, finishing her master's program at the University of Michigan. She was a special education teacher and uh, just her. incredibly, <laughs> incredibly beautiful, loving person. But At this time, she took some classes in addiction. She learned about alcoholism. Mm -hmm. We went through a year of therapy and counseling, marriage therapy and counseling, together. And I learned so much from that. And we were able to sit down and, with a third party, work out a lot of these problems. Um, And our life was as perfect as any two people could ever have it until I slipped into a second addiction.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. So did you ever get bored with your recovery path Um, and look around you and go, oh, I remember those
2: good old days? You know, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, when, When I'm going through the early stages of recovery, And I was in therapy. I was in a group uh, besides the marital therapy, and I was going to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And my practice had changed. I went out on my own, started working primarily with alcoholics. So I got to see every day almost for the rest of my life the effect that addiction had. And you know what? I don't have those fond memories. Today I can look at my drinking days realistically and and really feel sad about what I lost because of my addiction. Yes, and my experience
1: too is because I'm very blessed that I get to sit with people in recovery who have hit the bottom and, and walk their paths so, so to speak, with them. And I also have people who come in and say, you know what? I don't know if I'm going to do this recovery because I really like drinking, and and they won't do anything different, and they expect a different outcome, and they can't control it. So that that's what I am used to, and part of what we do is try to help them
2: overcome those inclinations.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and you, know it's, you
2: I, know, it's the greatest yeah. form of denial. Well, it, I like it. Yes, it, it is. I'm not, you know, how do you, how do you beat that? You don't. very difficult.
1: (laughs) Well, we can't beat anything unless we want to. But for many of us (laughs) alcoholics, the idea of having fun equates to getting drunk with friends or going to the bar. When you were drinking, what was your idea of fun, and how did you
2: alter that perception of what fun is? Well, in the beginning, it was fun. I was a party boy. You know, I, I was... Like I said before, I thought I was funny. Um, I enjoyed being around people. But then when I got into the hidden aspect of my drinking, then I just felt guilt all the time and remorse. And I didn't have an awful lot of fun in the the end stages of my uh, drinking. Um, And I don't miss that one bit. I remember the early days, and were there good times? Of course, there were weddings, there were good times with the family, but the devastation that was done because of my addictions far outweighed the good times that I had. If I, uh, found Michael, tomorrow, I'm, I'm
1: going to have to interrupt us because we're coming up on another break, and um, listeners, we will be back with Michael Burke talking about recovery from alcoholism and from gambling addiction. We'll be back in a few moments.
3: 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation, Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport.
1: Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, Just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, Consider JC Taylor Insurance. i have been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call JC Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the internet.
3: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctors Lounge and hear the doctors conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Anne's Relationship Radio. We're so happy to have you with us this morning, and we're talking about different kinds of addiction here, alcoholism and gambling in particular, but even when we say those names, alcoholism and gambling, they're very similar, and they go to the same parts of the brain. So one's a behavioral, one's a chemical addiction. Michael Burke, welcome back. And um, we were talking about how to have fun, and, what, and how to change your perception of what fun is. and Where many of my patients come from is, oh, I remember those good old days, and it was really fun, and I was really funny, and I was the life of the party. And often, I ask my patients, well, would you tape that? And they tape it, and they bring it back, and they go, oh, my God, I am a loony bin. I'm quoting them. So our perception isn't really what's factual actual. And I wondered if you had a
2: comment about that. I certainly do. The longer you can get away from your addiction, the more time you can put behind it, the more honest you're able to become about it. It is exactly like you just said. Yeah,
1: no, that's so true. And I'm also wanting to ask you, we know that many people struggle with what's called a cross-addiction. Would you explain to our listeners what cross-addiction is?
2: Yes. Uh, cross-addiction is either suffering from two addictions at the same time or doing what Mike Burke did, uh, giving <laughs> up your drinking, getting into a good recovery program, and fall prey to another addiction. Yes, and, and we, often,
1: we, we often do that so blindly, thinking, well, this is a new way to have fun. What led you to decide that gambling was fun?
2: Uh, I gambled a little bit as a young man, and, and it was fun uh, for me back then. Uh, and then through the college years, there would be the occasional poker game, and it really would excite me. Uh, but... I was drinking then, so you know it never it never seemed to get out of control because I was happy in my alcohol addiction. I didn't need another one. Uh, but after I gave it up, things started to happen. I started making uh, trips out to Vegas once a year. That was it. Uh, but unfortunately, and on one of the trips, the lies started again. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of the downfall of the just the devastation to myself and my family.
1: Yes. Now, I want to talk with you and our listeners a minute about the brain and gambling. There's a phenomenon called intermittent reinforcement, and I'm going to say that term again, intermittent reinforcement, which protects particularly pertains to gambling. So intermittent reinforcement is random and unpredictable and occurs when one is rewarded occasionally, but not continuously. So gambling, for example, um, when you get three cherries, you think, oh, my gosh, I got a reward, and you put all the slot machine money from the three cherries back in, and then you put more of yours in because you got this reward and you expect another. So you don't win every time, and you don't win the same amount when using a slot ex- uh, machine, for example, because that wouldn't be exciting, and it wouldn't be fun if you won all the time or if you lost all the time. So occasionally you win, as I said, three cherries, and less often you hit a jackpot, and the reinforcement causes a positive and euphoric response in the brain that is, in some circumstances can lead to gambling, this intermittent reinforcement. Now, Mr. Burke, how did this phenomenon of intermittent reinforcement lead you to a gambling addiction?
2: Well, first of all, I will tell you that there are three stages of gambling, compulsive gambling, Mm. winning, losing, and hopelessness. Uh, But the first stage, Anne, is winning. And a lot of people don't understand that. They say, what do you mean winning? Well, when you first start out gambling, like I did, uh, and when I started gambling a lot, is when they opened the new casino in Windsor, Canada. Windsor is about an hour away uh, from Howell, where I lived. And I could sneak over to Windsor and... I could gamble, you know, I'd set my limits, $300. I never took more than $300 in the beginning. Mm. I'd only go a couple days a week in the beginning. And I had plenty of money. I had a great law practice. Everything was going good. So it was wonderful. And But I never told anybody I was mm. doing this. I would sneak over there. And that is the key for the gambler. When you're gambling and you're not talking about it, that is something to be aware of. But the thrill for the gambler is exactly what you were talking about. No question about it. I, I would uh, play blackjack. Uh, that's what I started as an action gambler. I ended up my gambling days um, playing the slot machines. But in the beginning, in the beginning, that uh, blackjack was just such a wonderful feeling. You lose most of the hands. But you know what? Gamblers can sit there and lose 20 hands in a row and win one. And that one, or that one big loss, is the one that carries them for the rest of their life. Interesting. Now,
1: does it come become like a little family if you go to the same casino? They know you,
2: and you get perks, and you feel loved and accepted. You know, there was there was quite a bit of that in Vegas when I'd go out there once a year—the perks and all of that. And in Windsor, I did have a few friends, and when you say friends, it would be people I could borrow money from if I knew that I was going to hit on a machine and I was out of money. And you're talking to a lawyer who believed that. I yep. believe that with all my heart and soul, that yep. I was just one or two bets away from hitting a jackpot. And let me tell you quickly, that actually happened to me. I remember putting in my last $20 token and hitting a $10,000 slot. Yep. And so that's what I remember. I don't remember the hundreds of thousands of dollars I lost. I remember that one time. Yeah, of course, everybody would
1: remember that. That's just, like, goes to the pleasure center of our brain, and it's a reward, and we want to keep winning because we're on a winning streak, right?
2: And the first time I won $100,000, I'm sitting by the slot machine, and people would walk by and ask if they could touch me. Oh, my gosh. You know? I mean, so it fulfilled fulfilled the big shot role for me, you Mm -hmm. know, and I got that stimulation from the reinforcement of the win, and yet I'm losing incredible sums of money at the same time.
1: It's so interesting that you say... You remember the win, and you don't remember all the losses. and I just want to say for, from a gambling addiction standpoint, there has to be a need to gamble with increasing amounts of money to feel excited and or one gets irritable or restless when you try to cut back on your gambling, I would think.
2: Um, and you are ab- go ahead, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah. Henry Dr., St. LeSueur, one of the pioneers wrote a book on that, and he called it The Chase. Mm-hmm. And that's what gamblers do. And, and for some reason, that little pleasure center in our brain uh, just lights up when we, when we hit the jackpot. Um, and that, that is absolutely all that we are capable of recalling. And we believe, we believe that it's going to happen. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's that mental preoccupation with gambling that develops um, into a significant monetary loss. And by the way, that area of the brain that's the pleasure center of every yep. human brain is called the nucleus accumbens, and man, is it powerful. And it's just the tiniest little thing. And it doesn't really have words. It just has feelings <laughs> that we don't even have words for. So over time... The gambling addict perceives gambling as a stress reliever. Is that true? That's what I've
2: learned. Oh, uh, you know, absolutely. And one of the things that I learned, the uh, American Bar Association did a study with Hazelton, and it Mm -hmm. showed that 36% of the attorneys in the United States suffer from mental health uh, addiction issues. And a lot of that has to do with that stress that they're under. I, used, I remember going over there and sitting over there and just relaxing and not having to worry about anything. And you know what? I used to say to myself all the time, what's the big deal? I'm a yeah. good dad. <laughs> I'm a good father. I support my family. I take care of my clients. You know, what is the big deal? We all say that to ourselves.
1: We say, what's the big deal with one beer? But then we don't have just one beer because we want the whole bar. So um, that's why I always limit myself to a (laughs) five-cent slot machine when I'm around them, uh, which is not often because it's exciting to me to win three cherries, and I don't want to go past that.
2: Well, there's a doctor... Uh, out in your area of the country with UCLA. His name is Timothy Fong, and he's done a lot of studies and uh, MRI studies of the brain showing mm-hmm. that the same pleasure center that we're talking about lights up also with cocaine. Oh, everything.
1: Every- yep. It lights up so- with meth and, and yep. heroin and Um, sex addiction, all kinds of stuff. It lights up with hoarding. Think of the hoarders that go to the second-hand stores every day looking for a deal. That lights up their brain also. The the nucleus accumbens is is very subtle and very pleasure-seeking. I I need a short answer because we're coming up from a break, but would you share with our listeners... What happened to you in your career as a result of your gambling addiction? And, Michael, I might have to interrupt you for the break, but start on that for us, would you?
2: Okay. Um, Well, I got into a position where I was running out of money, and so I went to a client, started borrowing money from the client. The day came for the payback, and I didn't have it, and I was going to be exposed. And so Mm -hmm. what I did, is I took money out of my client's IOLTA account to pay back this client.
1: That's like their trust account.
2: That is my the lawyer's trust account. And it was something I knew when I was five years old that a lawyer never does. Uh, I discovered that today that it's called egotistonic behavior, doing <laughs> something that you never in your wildest dreams would think of doing, yeah. and I had entered into egodystonic behavior.
1: Yes, and with that, we're going to take a, a break, and listeners, we will be back with you with Michael Burke in just a few moments.
3: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear The Doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
1: This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.atlantahealingcenter.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back, listeners, with Mr. Michael Burke, who's telling him us his phenomenal story of recovery and resurrection. So, Michael, what happened with your family when you were going through this, and you stole money out of your client's trust account?
2: Well, unfortunately. Uh when a gambler steals money uh, for the first time, the only thought that goes through their head is, I'm not stealing the money. I'm going to pay it back. And Ann, I believe that with all my heart and soul. Mm -hmm. And for the next year and a half, I took money out of that account so I could win the money back from the casino and put it back in my account. Well, eventually, it all blows up. Uh... I turned myself in uh, to the bar and to the attorney general's office. Uh, Ninety days later, I was in court. I'd pled guilty to embezzlement of a client's funds over $20,000. And I was ordered to spend three years in Jackson Prison, the oldest walled prison in the country, in order to repay to my victims the sum of $1.6 million. Mm -hmm. My wife, my family, my community had no idea that any of this was going on. So,
1: again, you were kind of hiding.
2: (laughs) Hiding your hiding your
1: gambling, hiding the
2: consequence. I lived two lives. And all I did was lie.
1: Yeah, and that's a big one because then that ruptures family belief in um, being trustworthy. I'm, I'm wondering... It
2: took, us, it took us two years to recover from that after I got yeah. home through yeah. counseling and that. Uh, but I want to tell the listeners real quickly... Jane and I, the last eight years we had together were the best eight years of our life. Unfortunately, she came down with glioblastoma, and mm-hmm. five months later, Jane was gone from us.
1: Yes, and, and we are sad with you about your loss. Um. Was there an underlying issue, because I'm going to come back to what I started the program out with, was there an underlying issue that you were trying to band-aid with your gambling?
2: Uh, probably the stress of the job and also my desire to be a big shot. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, to have you know. it's like you say, when I went out to Vegas, uh, we were picked up by the limousine. Yeah, that was in the good days. That was during the winning phase of the addiction. Uh, It was fun. It was exciting. And, Ann, I must make one thing perfectly clear. Only 1% to 2% of the population suffers from a gambling addiction. 97% of the people, like, you know, can be just fine. They go to a casino. They have a good time. They win their fifty bucks. They lose their fifty bucks. Uh, no problem. I work with the casinos every day of the week. The casinos are the only ones funding treatment for the gamblers.
1: Yes, and in every gambling um, casino, there is a Gamblers
2: Anonymous meeting, right? Well, what they do is they set up programs that they call them their responsible gambling programs. And they have information for the gambler who's in trouble. And if you think you're in trouble, for God's sake, you either call your state helpline or contact the casino host. You know ah. they are there; they will help you. They will get you set up in a program. Well, MGM um, uh, is doing wonderful things uh, in this area.
1: That is wonderful. And I'm wondering if, like being the big shot, was the same thing that you tried to deal with with alcohol.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm sure it was. It made me feel uh, invulnerable, you know, and and I could do anything I wanted, and I was I was just as smart, and I was just as handsome, and I was just as good a football player, you know. Um, it worked for me. Until it didn't.
1: Yeah. (laughs) There's a little component of every addiction called grandiosity. And I think we all need to be mindful of grandiosity because it's an ego feeder. Do
2: you agree? I agree 100%. Okay.
1: Now, I get it that you had to, to decide to get into recovery from gambling. But there's an, even if you went to prison, there's no guarantee that you come out of prison, because I deal with some of the prison population, and you go, okay, well, I'm never going to do that again. I learned my lesson. So many people still have the belief that, oh, I can do this occasionally. It's sort of like alcoholism. I can do that occasionally. And it leads them down the path of no return. How did you decide to stay in recovery from gambling after you got out of prison.
2: Well, even more so while I was in prison, and because the number one pastime in every prison in the United States is gambling, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's open, and they know about it, and the the problem is it keeps a large part of the co- of the population happy, and they're they're not a, a trouble. Uh, mm-hmm. When when I came home, uh, I will tell you, because of the devastation I had done to my family and because of my years of uh, participation in AA, I, number one, while I was in prison, my family sent me every book they could find uh, on gambling. And there weren't a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, every article that came out they sent to me. Uh, so that's where I started getting my uh, experience. Expertise in in gambling while I was there, and my wife and my two daughters supported me. Um, and then when I got home, uh, once again, it's back to the therapy couch uh, and GA and AA. Um, and and I tell people, uh, any any twelve step program, any self help program, anytime you're doing something when you're talking to other people honestly about yourself is going to help you get through that period of time.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, and I have so many of my patients say, well, I don't believe in a higher power. And I say to them, yes, you do. You've used substances as your higher power to alter your mood, relieve stress, and as a social lubricant. And you've used gambling or hoarding for the same reason. So we always have to replace our higher power
2: with something different. Let me tell you what I learned early on at Brighton Hospital 40 years ago. The first week I was there, they took us downstairs to an AA meeting, and after the meeting everybody stood up to say the Lord's Prayer, and I refused. Nobody Mm -hmm. was going to make Mike Burke say the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what? I never had a problem saying the Lord's Prayer in my life. I can (laughs) tell you exactly what it was. I was so ashamed Mm. of what I had done, of what I had allowed to happen. This is before I learned what addiction was. I took it all on me as a bad, evil sociopath. And you know what? I'm not. But it took some time to learn that, and I couldn't talk to a higher power until I could start talking to myself.
4: Yes.
1: Now, Mike, you wrote a book, and I love the title name, and I'm going to tell our our readers this very slowly so they can write it down. It's called Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. Tell us about your book, and we are coming up to the end of our program. We have about mm, three more minutes, two more minutes, so... Tell us about your book.
2: Okay. I was sitting at Casino Windsor near the end of my gambling playing the $100 slot machine. I had hit three jackpots. I was up $120,000 to $140,000. I'm on the fourth machine pulling the lever as fast as I can. A casino host who knew me really well and knew I'd been losing came up behind me. He was just so happy, and he reached over And he whispered in my ear, and he said, remember, Burke, it's never enough. Uh, That came to me in Jackson Prison. And I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and that was the genesis of my book. Uh, The wonderful thing about the book is Chapter 7. My two daughters uh, combined to write that chapter because they wanted families to know uh what it's like going through this. And if there is hope, you can come out on the other side. Yes. So and, the book my... is a... Go ahead. The book the book unfortunately the American Bar Association, my publisher, stopped publishing this year after ten years of having it in print. But you can uh. still get it in a Kindle. And if you want to hear my story, go to Michael Burke, attorney Compulsive Gambler, and it's on YouTube, and it is the whole story of uh, what I went through and pretty much follows the book. Well, your story is amazing. If we're near the end, there's one thing that I really want to add to the people listening. I go around the country telling alcoholics not to gamble, telling gamblers not to drink alcohol, and they both think I'm crazy. (laughs) I want the world to know that addiction is addiction is addiction. If you have suffered from one addiction, stay away from them all. Nobody ever starts an addiction thinking, well, this is where I want to end up, in Jackson Prison.
1: Yeah. Well, Mr. Michael Burke... Thank you so very much for being such an interesting and informative guest, and your generosity with sharing your story with others is quite a community service, and I want to offer you my respect for being on the recovery path. And listeners, today we learned about Mr. Burke's relationship with gambling and some of the unresolved relationship issues that led in there. If any of you out there have an addiction, you too can resurrect, and you too can change your life. Remember, my weekly closing words, only you can make your world the way you want it to be. Until next week, this is Dr. Ann Schiebert supporting all of you to resurrect from your challenges. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.